This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Hello and welcome to Minnesota Liberty. I'm Rebecca Whiting and Jason Cleats. Um, tonight we are discussing the recent bank failures and uh, we have two guests with us, Joey from the Libertarian Party of Minnesota and Clint Russell from Liberty Lockdown. Um, but first, before we get into talking about the bank failures, I was going to bring up that the Libertarian Party of Minnesota's convention is going to be April 14th through 16th um, with Maj Ture, Angela McArdle, and Cassandra Fryman. And so you can get your tickets still if you want to come at lpmn.org. So um, without anything further, Joey, uh, I guess we'll start with you. Give us a little bit of a timeline about what's been going on. All right. I put a little bit of research into this. Um, so on Wednesday, March 8th, Silvergate Capital, which is a crypto-focused enterprise, uh, announced that it was going to close its uh, subdivision Silvergate Bank, uh, which was one of the two main banks for the crypto industry in the Silicon Valley West Coast sort of area. And the other one was uh, Signature Bank, which that's a little foreshadowing, I think. Um, that same day, like an hour later, uh, Silicon Valley Bank put out an investor memo saying that they had sold $21 billion worth of securities for a $1.8 billion loss uh, and that they were looking to do more fundraising. So they tried to couch it in nice language. I've read the thing numerous times, but uh, the next day their stock prices crashed and uh, what was it? They, uh, 23% of its deposits were uh, recalled by uh, depositors. So people withdrew $42 billion from SVB within a span of about 36 hours. Okay. And then on Friday, they entered FDIC receivership, uh, a.k.a. they closed and the feds said, hey, we're just going to hold on to that for you. <laughs> um, and to, to, to do. Sorry, that's a little bit of extraneous stuff. Um, Saturday, the New York Times put out a really long article trying to unpack the cause of SVB's crash. Um, they talked a bit about crypto and, uh, Goldman Sachs made a nice welcome into that story, which is funny. Um, but overall I was a little dissatisfied with it. Didn't end up finishing reading it, but there was a lot of information in there. Um, on Sunday, Signature Bank, as mentioned earlier, came up again by closing, uh, 11.3% of its total deposits had been uh, cashed out by people over the weekend. And so the uh, Federal Reserve issued a press release saying that they were making $25 billion available for uh, to fend off further liquidity issues from other banks. And then a joint release from Treasury, the Fed, and the FDIC uh, came out saying that both big banks were going to have all of their assets covered, not just the 250k that is encoded into law. So that was that was really striking. A lot of people are saying, "Oh well, the Feds own the banks." It's like, yeah, um, the creature from Jekyll Island exists. We've been here before. Um, uh, important clarification there: they they're only insuring the depositors, not the the oh, shareholders. Yeah. So yes. Just making sure people are aware of that. Yes. I, I, I misspoke. I said assets. They are not insuring the bank's assets. They are insuring the deposits at the bank. Right. In the full amounts of the deposits. And people were throwing around numbers of billions of dollars that were uninsured asset, uh, uninsured deposits at that bank. And uh, as of uh, Sunday, March 12th, all of those deposits were covered. Thank you for correcting me on that. No, it's okay. I just I just want people to be aware. Oh, it's yeah, not, yeah. No, it's, it's not it's the really full good 0809 bailout style. 
Yeah, yeah, because th there is a huge difference between the 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 words assets and deposits in this mm -hmm. context. Yes. So, so I appreciate compared the to two thousand eight and now two thousand, what's how's how's this different? Uh, this is different because the banks are closed. They're done. Those banks are shell corporations being run by the government, and they'll be sold off to the highest bidder once all this calms down. Those banks don't get a bailout. They don't come back. All their leadership is gone. It's it's uh, it's different, but it rhymes. Yes. is kind of how I would describe it. Basically, what what's interesting or the the cognate that I would draw is between TARP and then the FDIC lending vehicle that allows the bankers to offload their toxic assets, which are either long dated uh, mortgage backed securities or long dated treasuries. It, it is once again a a taxpayer backed vehicle lending vehicle that allows banks to appear solvent when they are not. And, mm -hmm. and the taxpayer will ultimately foot the bill. Uh, they can advertise that they aren't footing the bill as of now because it's a loan. It is not, uh, you know, it's not actually a grant. It's not just given to them at this point. But assuming that they are still insolvent by the time that loan duration expires, which I believe is 12 months, it might have been 24, uh, then the same problems will likely present themselves unless the Fed has reversed course and lowered the Fed funds rate, in which case those long-term or long-dated uh, debt instruments will no longer be so significantly underwater, in which case they might be solvent again. Uh, but as of today, there was a quarter point uh, additional Fed funds rate increase from Jerome Powell, which signals that the even with this, these bank runs, the Federal Reserve is still sticking to their plan of fighting inflation and defending the, the dollar's purchasing power. So it's a very interesting dynamic. It's essentially uh, QE on the back end with the insurance from the FDIC, which is backed by the Treasury as well as the Federal Reserve. Uh, but then it's also essentially austerity by increasing the federal funds rate, which will start to decrease the capital that's in the system and the amount of borrowing that's occurring. OK, mm -hmm. so we have seen, um, you know, interest rate or not interest rates, inflation just kind of going up and up in the last year or so. So what's this going to end up doing to the dollar? Well, because of the increased Fed funds rate, I, I think that it's going to create disinflation. I think we'll see a recession, which will wipe out trillions of dollars worth of wealth in the stock market, as well as likely real estate in the not too distant future. Um, and I would imagine that that would be enough to to put the clamps down on the inflationary pressure that we've been experiencing. Um, essentially, what we've been in for the past year or so has been stagflation, where we have a crappy economy, uh, but with inflation simultaneously. So they are trying to tip us over into a full on recession. That's my read of things, at least. Full on recession, depression, or just time will tell. I mean, if say. if they continue to hike interest rates at at you know a half a point on, at the next Fed funds rate and another half a point at the next Fed funds rate, then yeah, we're talking depression. Uh, if they relent or if they realize that it it gets to be uh, too detrimental to the the banking institutions of which they obviously are a part, uh, then then perhaps they'll they'll cool their jets. They may just you know, flatline it here with a Fed funds rate north of 5% and and say, you know, we're going to allow the system to kind of work its way through with interest rates at these levels and allow whatever destruction to come from that. Or they could relent entirely and start to do quantitative easing and reducing the Fed funds rate once again, in which case you're looking at hyperinflation potentially as the, the uh, petrodollar system is already under threat from the uh, Chinese and Russian deal with the Saudi Arabians. So it's there's there's a lot of factors and anyone telling you that they know definitively how this plays out, I think, would be lying personally. So in the meantime, what can like the you know, the just the normal person do that spends their days going to work nine to five? What can they do to help, you know, kind of give themselves a little bit of a boost knowing that this is the potential? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that hedging um Bitcoin, particularly, uh, I'm a huge fan of if if they end up relenting and, and starting to do QE again and uh, and interest rate cuts, I think that Bitcoin would get a massive boost. It, it has already ran 30 percent up over the past you know 20 days just yeah. because just because of the FDIC bailout. Uh, and, and they they realize that because they're not dummies. They all you know think the same way we do the kind of Austrian school backdrop as to what that means, which is it's a it's a shadow QE mechanism. And they realize that that will ultimately be inflationary in nature. Uh, but the Fed funds rate 
being increased is deflationary in nature. So they're also going to, you're going to see major ebbs and flows until we have real clarity as to what the Fed's path is going to be. Um, so I would hedge uh, for inflation via Bitcoin, precious metals. And then on the flip side, I would go to cash for deflationary pressures. If you have cash and you're able to deploy it in the 09 through 2011 period to acquire a, a litany of different assets would have been a boon to you and your family. You would have been able to make you know, an incredible return on investment. So, uh, and that's, that's actually how I became you know, wealthy and retired a couple of years ago is because I came out of college in 08 and I started to buy as many houses as I possibly could get my hands on in, in 2009 through 2014. And, uh, and it changed my life. So I think that there's a, a distinct possibility that we have another once in a lifetime buying opportunity that's only about 15 years apart from the last time we got it. And uh, for those that are in our camp, I hope that they are, you know, not just uh, aware of it, but also prepared to capitalize on it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now I guess with the banks that have failed, which is, is it to, can you say definitively, like looking at them where other banks are at risk and maybe what people should do if they are banking with somebody that's at risk? All right, is this for me or Joey? Oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, you guys pick because I don't want to step on him. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'll I'll go first, and I'll just first, Joey. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll just say, um, the FDIC insurance, uh, while government intrusion is not a good thing, uh, it means that if you have a modest amount of assets, not not like not being modest and using the word modest, but if you actually have less than a couple hundred K stored away, it's not necessary at this point in time, at least to okay. move assets from one bank to another. That's not going to make any difference. Yeah. And, and I would also say that if you are sitting on a, a significant amount of assets, you're going to want to move to one of the big fours. Um, and I know this is very counter to what libertarians prefer to do, but it, you have essentially a, now a written rule that says that you will be bailed out to an infinite amount uh, regardless of the $250,000 cap on the FDIC insurance, you will be essentially guaranteed that you will get your, your cash back. Now, whether or not that cash has any value by the time you get it back is still up in the air, but it will come back to you. Whereas if you're in a smaller bank, uh, Janet Yellen and, uh, and Powell have both said that like, they're going to let small banks go bust. Like that's, that's the plan. And, and what I expect to see is a huge rush of mergers and acquisitions uh, between, you know, the biggest banks and the smaller ones, uh, because like the game's up, like if you, if you can't insure depositors north of 250, well, your competitors can, well, you'd be crazy to be banking with the smaller guys. And it's, uh, it's tragic, but that's the nature of the beast. Yes. I heard on the radio, um, I think it was ABC that was doing the news. It was just, you know, like the radio station, I think it was, anyways, the news popped on and they were talking about, it was an interview with somebody that said, it's, this isn't, you know, the government stepping in to help these banks isn't a um, isn't a bailout. They called it a commercial solution, which I was just like, I OK. So what do you the I mean, clearly they have to spend this one way to make people not think they're the problem. Um, but, you know, going forward, how well, much? In <laughs> yeah. In, in truth, the these banks are not the problem. The Federal Reserve is the problem. Like right. what, what they, the, the position that they put them in was unwinnable. Like they, if you had, all right. So, so what happened because of fed policy is that you had all this funny money that was pumped into the system, not to mention, you know, Congress, which greenlit the COVID stimulus relief and all that BS. So you have all of these deposits, you have this huge bull market in the crypto uh, world that obviously places like Silicon Valley bank benefited from tremendously. They, they then are sitting on, $80 billion in liquid capital that they have to deploy somewhere to try and make a return on that capital while keeping it secure. They do what they think is the most prudent and uh, you know safe thing to do, which is to put it in 10-year MBS and 10-year treasury bills, which historically, you know, if you're not an idiot and you and you didn't pay attention to 0809 at all those are like that's a good safe investment that's what they're told by the liars on msnbc and that's what they're told by the lying politicians and that's what they're told by the lying federal reserve they're all they're all you know drinking their own kool-aid um 
but they they also the because of regulatory policy or regulator policy they were actually incentivized the the way they viewed their capital reserves to decide whether or not they are solvent the rules say and i'm not lying about this the rules say that cash is considered the exact same thing in terms of liquidity when you're doing a stress test on a bank as a MBS or as a treasury bill. They're not the same thing. Cash is not the same thing as a long dated debt instrument. And you'd have to be out of your mind to classify them the same thing. But the regulators are lunatics and scumbags and liars. So the banks then follow their lead. They put $80 billion into these debt instruments. So then they turn around and they go, well, yeah, we're insolvent, but it's because you hiked the Fed funds rate by from a quarter point to four and three quarters point in 12 months. How could we have possibly known you lunatics were going to do that? And they're kind of right. You know, I kind of feel bad for them, to be honest. Um, but at the at the end of the day, this is all about Federal Reserve policy. This is all about uh, their capacity to set interest rates as well as the amount of uh, currency that's in the system and circulating. It's It's evil. So you have a lot of people that aren't necessarily bad actors that are making bad investments based off of parameters that are outside of their control. And I just hope people understand that. Okay, so um, I think it was Joey mentioned Jekyll Island. Is there either one of you that want to give a little bit of the back history? Because this has been like something that's been building up for a long time, right? So this isn't a new problem. I think I'll let the person with more experience discussing this. In yeah, maybe give, give some detail for people that may not understand how that plays in. Well, I, I don't know the names. I, I haven't read that book in a few years, so I can't remember the names of the banking families that came together at Jekyll Island to to craft the the framework for the Federal Reserve System. But it was essentially piggyback, piggybacking off of the central bank model that had been popularized in Europe. And, and they decided that, you know, this is obviously a way to maintain kind of a, a shadow government, one that's able to control, in my estimation, the most important market signal that exists on earth, which is the price of money and the amount of capital that, that exists. Uh, so they found a way. And uh, in 1913, under Woodrow Wilson, they passed the Federal Reserve Act and boom, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> They've been in, in control ever since and no one really doubts it. And everybody thinks that we'd all die without them. And it's uh, it's totally insane. It's totally wrong. Um, I, I also wanted to make a note to say something to the libertarians that are listening right now, because I'm sure most people listening are libertarians. Uh, it's very important that even even though we understand this stuff and, and you know, I've, I've spoken very harshly on this interview so far, uh, when you are talking to people who aren't in our camp, uh, try and hold off on the told you so's and and educate them in like, this is what comes next. And this is how I know. And you could know this too, if you knew what I knew. Like that, that is a much more positive sell to people than I told you this was going to happen. Why didn't you listen to me? Because like people are suffering right now. You're in a bear market. You know, there there's, there's uh, anxiety. People don't know what's going to happen next. Like we can give them some advice on what's going to happen next. And that's a much more positive message for people and, and, and a message that will be uh, people will be far more receptive towards. So I just wanted to throw that in there, too. Yeah, I know. I mean, we so we got wrapped up. My family did in the 2008 um, housing market crash. Right. And uh, actually still a lot of people did. Yeah, we <laughs> you know, we had just we bought a house in August of 2008. And then just, I mean, just literally a few months later, everything kind of just fell apart. Um, and so I think back to that and just like, you know, if we could have done something, if somebody could have just said something, because there's no way you can, you know, people who aren't paying attention and most people just simply are not paying attention. You know, we're busy. We've got things going on. You know, I we have kids, you know, that wraps up a lot of your time. Of course. But as far as like, um, you know, for the common person who is... We, you know, we know what's coming. We know what's going next. Um, you talked about investments um, and like the things that we can do more immediately and not just with like money, I guess. I'm, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this, but, you know, <laughs> what would be your message for like a regular person who just this is going to catch them off guard? Yeah, well, I, I mean, for the regular person, I would say try and take advantage of this information that most people aren't privy to. Like you can benefit from what I'm telling you right now is valuable information. So like you're already miles ahead of everybody else that you know. So like, don't just sit on your laurels. Don't get down. Don't get depressed. Don't despair. Like find ways to capitalize off of 
the economic turmoil that we're likely to experience. And, you know, if, if we're fortunate enough and we don't experience it, then awesome. You know, <laughs> then I'm wrong and great, but I don't think I'm wrong. So uh, I would start there. And then I would say, you know, just realize that some of this is out of your control and, and don't, don't let it ruin your day-to-day life. Focus on what you can control. Um, you know, focus on, on your skill set and focus on your family and raising kids that are intelligent and beautiful and perfect in every way. Like that's, that's just as important as, as wealth, as far as I'm concerned, if not more so. Um, and then I had one other point I was going to get to, but I'm blanking. Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. You can come back. Cause I'm, I'm kind of like, anyways, this is, this is only our second episode. So <laughs> this is the first time I've ever done this really. So, or second actually technically. So anyways, if you have anything you want me to ask, just tell me to ask a question. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I was just going to add that, you know, the, when, when there is a severe recession, basically almost everyone suffers. So like you're going, like there's going to be a down cycle where everyone is in pain except for the wealthiest amongst us, which, right. you know, um, so it, it's not as if like, it's never as bad as you would necessarily imagine. And like, you can recover from financial losses. Like as long as your health's there, as long as your relationships are good, like you'll get through it. Um, but I would just really encourage people. Oh, this is the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, if you do understand what I do, and I think most of us in the libertarian camp do, especially if they listen to my show, then they definitely understand it. Um, to, to to talk about it, to talk about it at work, to tell to tell people at your church, to tell people at your, you know, your kids' sporting event, like try and and get this this message to more people that like it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to continue to be on this treadmill of corruption and crony right. capitalism. And and if people don't understand what I am saying right now. They're going to turn to the state and say, fix it. And the state is going to fix it with more of the same poison that we've been ingesting my entire life. Um, so I think that like the message I would like to imbue in the audience is like, you have an opportunity here. Don't look at this as all negative. Look at this as a massive opportunity. Like people really listen to us when there's a banking crisis because we're the only ones that ever warn about banking crises. So, um, you know, just realize that and, and capitalize on this moment. I, I hate to you know, sound predatory, like I'm going to capitalize on people's misery, but it's not really that. I'm just, I'm trying to get the truth to people when they're actually, when their ears are actually open and their ears are really only open during times of economic turmoil. Yeah. Jason, you had something you wanted to add. Oh, Jason, your, your you're sound muted, is off, bud. <laughs> we'll come back. Okay. So um, what we did after 2008 was uh, just a little bit of a time frame. My husband was in the army in 2008. And, and so after we got out, my having remembered what was, you know, 2008 was like and just the how much money we lost because of the housing market. Um, we moved. That's how we ended up in Minnesota. And now we're, we have a farm. So at the very least, you know, like if my my view is at the very least, if things get super bad you know, like I can vegetable garden because I have the space right. yeah. and we have milk cows and we have, um, we raise pigs, things like that. So I know not everybody has that, um, opportunity, but you know, that was kind of how we reacted having learned some lessons right. from 2008. Well, and, and if we experience another repeat, you know, of 2009 through 2010, and we see a 40 or 50% reduction in real estate prices over the next couple of years, well, then right now, Everything in your life should be dedicated to getting your credit score in order and to getting a down payment acquired. So like it, you don't have to be rich to do that. I mean, that no. gives you two years to try and put together 40 grand and get your credit in order. Like that should be doable, especially if you dedicate all of your, your you know, time and resources and energy towards it. So just make sure that you have, you know, the, when the opportunity presents itself that you don't fail to capitalize on it. Cause those are truly, usually those are truly once in a lifetime moments. It, it looks like we may get a second one. Um, but then there's also the distinct possibility that we go the hyperinflationary route. If the petrodollar system ends and the U S dollars reserve currency status ends, then, then you could see major inflation. And in, in, in which case you have a once in a lifetime opportunity to acquire precious metals or Bitcoin and, and potentially change your life in that direction too. So I would like to encourage people just to hedge both directions and, and, you know, let the best man win. So, you know, in the Libertarian Party, the end the Fed is a big thing. Um, what would yes. happen if we actually ended the Fed? Uh, there would be massive economic turmoil. 
<laughs> I mean, that's the truth. The the yeah. the debt the debt that exists right now globally is predominantly you know uh, in U.S. dollars, and mm-hmm. it's also uh, predicated off of interest rates, which are set by the Federal Reserve. And if it doesn't exist, and you have a a free floating interest rate market or competing currencies, I think the U.S. dollar would become confetti instantly. Um, so. Or, or I guess it would just be gone theoretically too. Um, so yeah, it would be <laughs> it would be a very very bumpy ride for a few years. But then, very likely, we could uh, you know convert to decentralized currencies and and probably build a much healthier and and more equitable economy moving forward. But um, it would be absolutely brutal in the interim. Yeah, I was trying to. So I read a lot of history, and I I'm always reminded when you talk about hyperinflation, um, Germany post World War One, right? So and I don't remember the exact numbers, I was trying to Google it really fast to see how what the percentage was that they their value, their money lost value. But it was I mean, a couple hundred percent per year, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a lot. And it might have been it might have been 1000s of percent. I mean, it was oh, at the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if that's the case in the United States, like worst case scenario. And that is, that is just, you know, worst case scenario. Um, I mean, that's the amount of devastation on such a wide scale that could happen here. If we were, you know, needing a wheelbarrow full of money to go yeah. and buy bread at the grocery store and supply there'd, lines. There'd are yeah. I mean, the starvation sickness, I mean, just the amount of I don't know. That's what I think about in, you know, we talk about hyperinflation is what happened in Germany and in Venezuela too. So that's a more recent example. Right. Well, let, let me, let me make one clarification because I think it's important to calm people down because of the, the petrodollars status and the fact that so many global contracts are, are denominated in the U S dollar. Those have to unwind before those dollars come home domestically. So like, even if we are to experience hyperinflation at some point in our life, I think it's at least a decade off. That's that's my honest opinion. So I, I don't expect that to happen rapidly. Um, I know a lot of libertarians do. Uh, Peter Schiff has obviously made his name off of predicting that for 20 years now. Uh, <laughs> I don't agree with him. And I, I think it's because he either he misunderstands or he just undersells how much the U.S. dollars demand is absorbed by the global economy. Um and as long as that stays in place, which it looks like it's now tenuous, so it looks like it's ending. But even if it does end and, and Saudi Arabia and Iran and China and Russia all stop using the U.S. dollar and all stop buy, buying our treasuries, there's still That's a, a lot decades of long process. Yeah, there's still a lot of nations that use it. And there's still a lot of contracts that are are set to be pay, paid in dollars. And I think that that's going to take some time to unwind. And I think in the interim, it's very likely that the Federal Reserve or the Treasury or the U.S. government itself would you know, move towards central bank digital currencies and migrate away from the U.S. dollar. So there's going to be a lot of moving pieces. And I don't like if we're to see hyperinflation, I think that the U.S. will be one of the last nations to experience it. So smaller um, nations that are already more. They're in way more trouble. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know, Jason, did you get your, so what does this mean for the average investor? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me now? We yeah. Can. <laughs> can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> how does this affect, how does this, uh, okay. so for the average investor, how does this affect us? Well, uh, it depends on what you're invested in. I mean, if you're a big, if you're a Bitcoin investor, it could be great. <laughs> Um, and if you're in housing, it could be bad. Yes. Sir. Um, so there's, you're, you're a little bit lagged behind us, brother. So I'm just going to keep talking. Um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 like I said, it, it could end up being, you know, disinflation or deflation that we experience, in which case you're going to want to have cash and be able to capitalize on a, on a bear market. Um, or it could be increasingly inflationary, in which case you're going to want to be in harder assets. And because, Real estate is predicated off interest rates so heavily, I think that it will not be as good of a hedge against inflation as something like Bitcoin would. Um, there's obviously some uh, leverage that's being used in the Bitcoin market that makes it not totally impervious to interest rate manipulation. But uh, I think that real estate is so heavily predicated on interest rates, like everybody buys a house with a loan, basically. 
Um, I think that in like the real estate market specifically is not going to be the best hedge against inflation. I know a lot of people are not going to like hearing that because they, you know, if they have a house, they like, they expect that to be their hedge against inflation and, and it will keep you above water. I just think that there will be other assets that outperform it. And I think Bitcoin would be that if we experience severe inflation. Um, my personal prediction is that we experience a, a recession before we enter kind of the, the final stage of the fiat currency die off. And I would expect to see opportunities to acquire Bitcoin at a lower entry point than we're seeing now, but you don't know for sure. So it's important to hedge both ways in the interim. I heard so a rumor last be, year. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so um, I just lost my thought. I have my apologies. So for um, the government, how could something like this play into their ability to create new regulation? Well, every time there's a crisis, they create new regulation, whether we ask them to or not. And if we ask them to, then they create even worse regulations. So, uh, you know, the Dodd-Frank bill that came through in 2009-10, right after the Great Recession, was horrifically bad. It, uh, it it was dedicated to preventing too big from to fail from occurring again. What did we get from that? We got four banks that are bigger than ever in human history. That's what we got from too big to fail, uh, you know, from preventing too big to fail moving forward. They're liars. Uh, the, the, the regulations and the laws are written by the lobbyists and the lobbyists are the most wealthy people, people in the world. And the bankers are usually some of those people. So you are not going to regulate your way out of this, not even close. And anybody telling you that is absolutely full of it. So I would be very hesitant to give any sort of uh, tacit agreement to any of the politicians saying that they're going to fix this for us. They're not. They're going to ensure their next election cycle. And that's it. Um, I heard on the radio that Sharon Stone, uh, celebrities like that, she had, she lost over half of her, yeah, that sucks. Um, her wealth. That's a, I don't know how much she was worth before and I haven't, I haven't searched it, but that, that had to have been a lot of money. So, and I'm assuming since that she was in that situation, that there are other people that were also in that situation. Oh yeah. Commit, uh, Joey, one of the the first bank that was Silicon Valley Bank, uh, right? That was bank number two. Bank number one was a very heavily crypto focused bank, Silvergate. Okay. Okay. So, um, and the Silicon, I, you know, I'm not actually well read or understand most of this bank stuff. So it's okay. But That's the, what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. See, and most people are probably not there. Most people are probably in my situation trying to. No, exactly. I don't expect people, if, if everybody knew what I knew, it'd be weird. <laughs> like I did, I was a mortgage maker for 15 years. You should not know what I know. Yeah, I am. Um, I grow tomatoes in my free time. So <laughs> it's a little bit different. Um, hey, that's equally like, productive. <laughs> sometimes. Um, so this, I, I don't know. I interpreted the Silicon Valley bank um, with that one failing because that's where a lot of like the technology and um, things come out of you know, that half of the United States. So that, and from what I understood, because that one failed, that was, you know, the, one of the dominoes that had to topple and that there were other banks dependent on that. Is that oh correct? yeah. That, that was your question earlier about, you know, do we have any estimates as to other banks that are equally insolvent or in danger? The yeah. answer, the answer is most, most of these banks are, are uh, to some extent insolvent because so many of them put their depositors capital into long-term debt instruments, either T-bills or mortgage-backed securities. And when the Fed, let me just explain this very briefly. It's, it's actually very straightforward. When you acquire a long-dated debt instrument, which is a treasury bill, so it's basically a loan to the government that says, I'm going to give you $100,000 and I expect a 1.5% return annually for the next 10 years. And then at the end of that, you give me the full 100 grand back. Well, that interest rate is highly predicated off of the Fed funds rate. Mm -hmm. And the Fed funds rate went from a quarter point to four and three quarters point. So an investor looking to acquire a debt instrument, a loan to somebody that, that by which they can have some sort of passive income is going to look at that and say, well, you want me to acquire this, this bond at 1.5% annual return when I can get a new one from the same people that are going to the same, you know, debtor, which is the federal government at four and three quarters percent. 
or or five and a half. Like, why in God's name would I acquire that from you? So what does that mean? That means that 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 instrument, that holding that you have, that asset as the lender is now worth less because if anyone's going to acquire it from you, they're going to want to take a discount to get the return back to what it would have been. So what that means is that Silicon Valley Bank was sitting on tens of billions of dollars worth of losses because they had put $80 billion into these debt instruments. Oops. Um, And most banks did the same thing over the past two years. Some of them hedged and some of them did it successfully, but hedging in the bond market is challenging. I had on Greg Foss on Liberty Lockdown, and he is a 30-year bond trader, and he explained it to me. It's very complicated and convoluted, and it's kind of an art. It's not really a science. So many of them thought they were hedged, and they weren't because the Fed moves so aggressively. So I think that there are a tremendous amount of banks that are sitting on toxic assets, and uh, not, not I think, I know, uh, because there's been reports out there from other you know reputable, reputable news institutions that are saying exactly that. Um, but the, the reality is, is that the, the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC have put in a backstop to depositors on all of the bigger banks and mid-sized banks of, of any significant magnitude, basically any bank that's bigger than Silicon Valley Bank saying, well, you now have essentially a guarantee for your depositors. So that will prevent bank runs. So even if they're insolvent, they won't have a bank run. So they can essentially limp along uh, while they're sitting on these toxic assets and probably be able to unload them at duration, which will be nine, eight, nine years from now. I hope that well, makes sense. Are there businesses that are going to, at risk for failing because they were depending on those banks? Not really. Uh, because of the, the depositors were insured ultimately on Silicon Valley Bank, they didn't, lose their de- they didn't lose their deposits that were being held at the bank. So like, yes, had they allowed them to fail, then yeah, there was like uh, Roku, I believe, had tens of millions of dollars that was in Silicon Valley Bank. And had that not been insured, had they not been sent that money because the FDIC's increased insurance backs up, then yeah, they wouldn't have been able to make payroll. They wouldn't have been able to make you know their marketing budget and everything else. And they probably would have been bankrupt. And there would have been a litany of companies in Silicon Valley that would have been bankrupted over it. So for people who don't understand, what is, what is FDIC exactly? It's the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, I believe, or Corp or something like that. Corporation, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's all it is. It's just a federal deposit insurance. <laughs> exactly what it says. Mm-hmm. established um, by an act of law for the sole purpose of uh, using money that they collect from banks as a fee for existing correct. to dole out to consumers uh, when their deposits are in jeopardy from stuff like this happening. Right. Okay. And when did, like, how long has that, I mean, you know, you, know, you see the sign on banks, the FDIC, um, but how long has that, if I'm remembering my history right, wasn't think, that something that was, was established during the depression? I think it was like 1940, but I, okay. I could be wrong. It was it was right after the bank run, so it was sometime in the 30s or 40s for sure. Um, and the depression, when that the history of that and how all that kind of went down. Um, do you? I don't know. Does anybody have any information on like what's the difference of today versus the back then? So 1929. Man, lots of differences. <laughs> okay. There really are. There's a ton of differences. I mean, the the amount well, of we're debt... in a different day and age. Everything is different. So yeah, no, but that... I'm saying like like this is like quantifiably different on okay. uh, in, in terms of debt. Uh, the 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 global debt instruments that have been created, the innovation in debt instruments, and the uh, you know collateralized mortgage things that they've done. Like these are all new. Like none of that existed back then. You didn't have derivatives contracts. You didn't have any of that. So I mean, we're talking hundreds of trillions of dollars of global debt (laughs) like that's just those are just numbers even if you were to you know uh, account for inflation it's just totally it's nothing even relatable at all to what we saw in the late uh, 1920s so i think that it it, like if they were to just pull the ripcord and be like all right like like you were asking if the Fed, Federal Reserve was to actually be abolished overnight or if the Federal Reserve were, was to hike the Fed funds rate to 25% or 20% like they did in 1980s. Uh, I mean, it would be cataclysmic. You would have you would have a global depression that would, in my estimation, make 1929 look like child's play. <laughs> that's, that's honestly my opinion. So how long, I mean, how do you, if, if that was ever, like worst case scenario, I mean, that could you know, depression, the world is going through that again. How do you overcome that as, you know, people? 
yeah, you just be you just be self sufficient and uh, and innovate and and look after your community and provide goods and value to your community. That's all you can do. So, like, if you have a a house with land and you're able to grow crops, well, good. <laughs> you better have guns too, because there's going to be hungry people that want that food. Um, so you need to be able to defend it. You need to be able to have um, some sort of asset, personal ability that is marketable during those times. And if you're able to grow food, that's a marketable asset. If you have guns and ammunition, you can provide defense. That's also a marketable asset. Like the, like a lot of things that aren't really marketable assets right now become extraordinarily valuable during times of great turmoil. Um, so I think that those skill sets will will go from being kind of archaic and outdated to being very in vogue if that were to happen. But again, I'm not actually predicting a, a global Great Depression imminently. I just think that like we are in the I, I said yesterday on my show that like we were in the eighth inning of what I think will be the ultimate death of fiat currency globally. And now I think we're probably in the ninth, like but the top of the ninth. <laughs> so like we, we have a little bit more time left, uh, but not a lot. So um, in history, uh, we've we've learned over the years. Uh, why is it that the people above us never seem to learn the lessons that we learn? Uh, is there any 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 opinion to that? Sure, they benefit. Qui bono? They benefit from all of the turmoil. Every time that that there's a a reset, a great reset, if you will. Uh, the people with assets, particularly during a inflationary uh, death spiral, if you own all of the housing, well, then you don't really suffer, do you? You know, because that's going to be a pretty solid hedge against inflation. Uh, if you own all the gold, well, then uh, it's not that big of a deal if you have inflation. Um, but if you don't, well, then it crushes you. And that's what the average person is usually facing. This is why the lower and the middle class get wiped out by these types of cycles, whereas the wealthy seem to become increasingly wealthy. And this is why it's so evil and sinister that, you know, the people that espouse concerns about income inequality, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Bernie Sanders of the world, never say a negative word about central banking or the Federal Reserve or interest rate policy or the printing or the borrowing or any of the things that ultimately kick the can and, and pass the bill down to the poorest amongst us. This is why I hold them in such low regard, because they lie to their people, whether it's ignorance or malice. I don't really care. They're scumbags because they don't tell the truth about why people are actually becoming poorer. And that's why. And I, I feel like this is a message that libertarians do not convey adequately. They don't convey it in a way that's sympathetic to the poor. We oftentimes are like sound like Republicans, you know, lift yourself up by the bootstraps. And, you know, this, this isn't your doing uh, or, you know. You can you can find your way through. It's like, look, you can you can pivot, you can spin it into a positive thing, but people should be angry. They should be angry that this system is structured in a way that makes it exceedingly hard for the poor to rise up because it doesn't have to be that way. If you're innovative and hardworking and you come from a, a poor background, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to succeed if we actually functioned in a capitalist society, but we don't. So that's the the message I try and convey to them is like. Look, you should be angry, but you're angry at the wrong people. You're you're angry at the the mom and pop store down the street when you ought to be angry at BlackRock and the Federal Reserve. Like those are the people that are actually screwing you. It has nothing to do with that, you know, dry cleaner owner down the street. Yeah, we have been and self-employed um because we do farm stuff too and I I didn't really realize until I got into agriculture, particularly small agriculture just how um, micromanaged everything is. And I remember at one point in time trying to figure out, you know, like we just wanted to be able to grow some things and raise some animals and then turn around and be able to just sell it because everybody has to eat. Right. But the, the amount of, can't do that. That you drop yeah, yeah, that you have to jump through to be able to get, you know, your beef to the market or to be able to, like right now, I have um, a raw milk bill that I've been working on with a legislator to just legalize the sale of milk from our farm. Um, yeah, because ridiculous. the amount of capital that we would have to have to invest just in a micro dairy would uh, exceed probably $250,000. It's extraordinary. Yep. Um, yeah. 
Uh, same thing with my mortgage company. I was, uh, you know, I was a private money mortgage broker, so I had all private investor capital. I didn't do any outside marketing, but I still had to file these forms with the Department of Real Estate, which like why they are my regulator when I'm like, I'm not buying or selling real estate, but this is the Department of Real Estate. But they, they, you know, they still had oversight over me. So I get these audits annually where they like they go through all of my documentation. They'll find like one little thing and they'll find me or not find me, but they'll charge me for the audit because there's one little thing that's off, but it's not like no one was harmed by it, but it's just a paperwork thing. And I'm doing dozens of or a hundred loans a year or something. So it's like, of course, there's going to be one, you know, T that didn't get crossed. So they just go in there looking to justify their audit costs, even though they don't find anything that's criminal. They don't find anything that's actually able to, you know, punitively punish me, but the audit itself costs $10,000. Because they spend all these hours with this person, some government idiot that has to go through all of my contracts. So I have to pay for their time to then come back and tell me, oh, you got one thing wrong. It didn't impact anything. And they do this to me year after year after year. It's just like, yeah, this is why, you know, good entrepreneurs just exit. This is why this is also why entrepreneurs go black market because they're just like, screw it. I'm not dealing with you people anymore. You're criminals. Um, And this is terrible for the economy. And and I just, this is why I'm so pessimistic about the future of the American economy and the global economy, because as the, the government needs so much in terms of tax receipts to even stay afloat without having terrible inflation, that it's like, it's just going to become increasingly predatory. Like that's, that's the trajectory we're on. Like we are late stage empire. We aren't capitalists anymore. It's crony capitalism. The only way you get ahead is to be some ESG lunatic practitioner and, and you have to, you know, pay off politicians to ultimately rise to the highest level of, of this capitalist model, which is not, uh, if I, if I even have to say that sentence, obviously it's not capitalism, right? (laughs) I'm paying off politicians to rise. So uh, it's it's infuriating. But I mean, this is why you have so many young people that are so convinced that capitalism is evil, because what we're under is evil. It just happens to not be capitalism. So, right. yeah, there you go. That's it. My husband just went back to um, being paid an hourly wage because we had tried to in response to the um, the vaccine mandate. He, oh his job God, was yeah. going to get wrapped up into that. And so instead of allowing you know, him to be put in the position where he was forced to get a vaccine he didn't want, right. decided to go into um, you know, just 100% self-employment. Well, then we learned that uh, you know, through the Department of Labor in Minnesota, that just because you want to be self-employed, they don't really see the necessity of making sure that all your licenses, the paperwork and time and, you know, things get, but they are very quick to come and get you if they find out you're advertising without your license being finished by them, even though they have the paperwork the whole time. Right. So uh, we came out of that just, I mean, being self-employed is a a good idea. I would love to do it, but the, the things that you have to go through to end up, anyways, he went back to an hourly wage it was just easier to not have to deal with all the problems yeah, and, I get it. and have a weekly, you know, paycheck, some, a little security that somebody else was providing, even though it's not as good as it could be. Right. Um, you know, it's better than nothing. Well, this, this is the terrible nature of the incentives that are pre- presented to you because of a corrupt system. Um, you know, it, it kills entrepreneurial spirit. How do you expect to compete on a global economic marketplace if you are crushing the entrepreneurial spirit in your country. You are right. guaranteeing yourself failure, doom even. And this is part of the reason I take such urgency when I talk about these things is because I know we're going to have our lunch eaten by a bunch of nations that should not be able to compete with us. They shouldn't be able to, but they're going to crush us. And I don't think people are ready for it. I don't think that Americans are ready for the dollar reserve status ending and us having to you know, scrape and claw and try and find any way to to survive. That's just not what Americans are accustomed to. We've we've had it too good for too long. They are not prepared for hard economic times that don't end very rapidly. Um, so it's going to get interesting. Yeah, we are of uh, our generations. What the generations have gone through are very different now than they were during the depression. In the you <laughs> no know, kidding first part of the the twentieth century. I mean, they're just 
most people don't have the life skills or the hands-on skills to be able to do basic things for themselves because they're just so accustomed to be able to, you know, get things quickly and easily and cheaply. So. Yep. That's why you got to get those skills now, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Focus yeah, we on got- it while you can. We have the benefit of, you know, raising our kids on a farm and making everybody do stuff for themselves and that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just it is, although it is, it's just hard work. It is. um, And it's really hard sometimes to stick with it when you see everybody else is like going on vacations and you're like doing this stuff. And, you know, you got to stay at home because the cows still have to be milked every day. Right. You know, well, let let me uh, let me end on a positive note. Um, You know, the the knowledge that I just gave you over the past hour <laughs> puts you miles ahead. So like everybody, everybody that's listening to this, just take it seriously. Don't let it wear you down and, and prepare, you know, just prepare. And yeah. I think, I think that because most people are totally oblivious to, to what we're talking about, your competitive advantage is huge right now. So just take that for what it's worth and, and capitalize on it. And, and I think that I want, I want to see our community, benefit from this turmoil similar to how the powerful will you know i want to see us rise to be you know be able to compete with them on the natural elite level because they are corrupt elite they are crony elite they have no actual authority over us but you know people that can do it the right way and do it without you know government handouts like that that will be the the next version of elite in whatever the the coming world looks like so i want as many people that have our belief system to uh to end up in that position. Yeah. Hope and endure. That's pretty much what you can do. Yep. And, and tell the truth, speak out, please. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much. um, Both Joey and Clint for coming on the podcast this evening. This has been fun and thank you for your patience with me. I will get better at this as we do more. (laughs) My pleasure. Yeah. Have a good evening. Yeah. If anybody wants to check out my work, it's Liberty Lockdown on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all over the place. Just Liberty Lockdown. And then I also do a insane comedy show called Tower Gang. If you want to check that out, um, check it out on Rumble. All right. Thanks, awesome. guys. Awesome. Yeah, stuff. thank you.